Let's dive into the book of Galatians. Are you ready? Come on, you got to talk back to me. You know I'm a Pentecostal and a black preacher, so you got to make a lot of noise. But I want to dive into the book of Galatians, and I'm going to be setting a lot of foundation for where we're going to go. I'm going to give you a lot of scripture, uh, and so you're going to have to really write really fast, um, but it's going to be good stuff. I want to teach you a little bit as we get into Galatians. Let me give you a little background and context for Galatians. Galatia is unlike the other books of the Bible, like Philippians, Philippi, uh, Romans, Rome. Galatians and Galatia, Galatia is actually not a city. Galatia is a county. It would be like saying the SF Bay Area. So to get you to understand this, there are different cultures that are uh, happening in this region. There's, and we're going to see that in chapter two and three, that there's ethnic diversity that's growing in the body of Christ because of the message of grace. But we have to start off by saying Galatia is not a city. It's simply a county, a large county. And the people, uh, Rather, theologians believe that the book of Galatians was actually one of the first books that Paul had actually written to the early church. The point of Paul writing the book of Galatians was to teach on justification. Everybody write that word down. That's a big theological word, justification. It's spelled J-ustification. Very simple. Here's all it means. It means once I've been justified, all this means is that God has made me in right standing with him. Now, the first thing you have to understand is that you cannot make yourself in right standing with the Lord. Only God can. Only God can. This is why the scripture says, I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. It doesn't say that I have righteousness, that I am empowered by my own righteousness. It says, no, I'm saved. I'm, 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 I'm a believer in God. I'm a child of God because of Christ's righteousness on me. So when we talk about justification, which the whole book of Galatians is really about, what we're talking about is, is Paul proving a thesis that man can only be saved by faith through grace. Are you still with me? As you know, Christianity began amongst Jewish people. Jesus was a Jew himself. Uh, and just an interesting fact that you might not know, just along in studies, uh, in order to be considered Jewish, your mother had to be Jewish. Um, if your father was Jewish, but your mother wasn't Jewish, you were not considered Jewish. But if your mother was Jewish and your father wasn't Jewish, you would be considered Jewish. I'll give you an example. Timothy, you remember Timothy? So he, he got a couple of books in the Bible. Uh, Timothy, his father is actually Greek. His mother is a Jew, but amidst the Jewish people, he was considered Jewish because his mother is a Jew. Why am I saying this? Jesus' mother was a Jew. Come, this isn't hard. It's open book quiz. Jesus' mother was a Jew. Right. Now, now, that's important. That's strategic. God didn't do that by accident. There's a reason he did that because uh, God was going to bring the gospel to Jews first. And Jews received Jews, not Gentiles. So Jesus had to be a Jew. I'm teaching really good whether you know it or not yet. Uh, but, but Jesus had to be a Jew so that he could bring the gospel first to the Jewish people then throughout the ends of the earth. So when we come to Galatians, we're seeing that the gospel is starting to spread and now non-Jews are getting saved. To the point where non-Jewish believers started uh, outnumbering Jewish believers. You can, just for a scripture reference, Acts chapter 14, verse 27, it talks a lot about the Gentiles and the revival. And, and just in case you don't know what that word means, because uh, I'm going to use it quite a bit throughout the sermon, Gentile just means a person who's not Jewish. You and I, we're all Gentile, unless you're Jewish, all right? Uh, but you can check that out in Acts chapter 14, verse 27. Some would argue 
that there were even more Gentile converts than uh, those who were Jewish. Now, write this other word down, Judaizers. I'm going to give you a lot of vocabulary, set some foundation, and then we're going to preach. Judaizers, J-U-D-A-I-Z-E-R. This was the faction of the Jewish community that had converted to faith in Christ. They were called Judaizers. The problem was, and we're going to see this as we go throughout the message today, Judaizers did not fully believe that salvation came by faith and grace alone. They believed that you had to do works on top of faith and grace. And so we're going to see in just a little bit that Jews from Jerusalem would come here to Galatia and start telling the church of Galatia that you're not right with God because you haven't been circumcised, you don't keep the law. And so Paul is inspired to write the book of Galatians to come against the false doctrine of the Judaizers. Are you still with me? I know this is a lot. You might have to hear this message a couple times before you get it all in. Interestingly enough, unlike many of the books that Paul read, the book of Galatians doesn't start off the same way as other books of the Bible starts off. When you read the different Pauline epistles, he always starts off thanking God and praising God for the church. But we're going to see in just a moment that Paul doesn't start off the book of Galatians thanking God for, for the church of Galatia. As a matter of fact, there's a tone to his writing where Paul is a bit frustrated that they have retracted and gone back to their old ways of believing. Paul starts off the letter frustrated, and here we go, verse 1, buckle your seatbelts. I, Paul, an apostle, parentheses, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who, who raised him from the dead and all the brethren, brethren who are with me. Paul is about to spend some time proving the validity of his apostolic mantle, and I won't stick too much here because I just taught on this not too long ago, and if you want to know the requirements of, uh, of what it took to be an apostle, I, I encourage you to go back to our last sermon series, the fourfold ser- uh, sermon uh, series, and listen to the message or the podcast around apostolic uh, n- nature. I forget what it's called. It's called apostolic or something like that. Um, but there I do a lot of teaching on what it took to be an apostle. So I won't dive in there too much. But I will point out the fact that Paul says here in verse one that I'm not an apostle because a man laid hands on me. I'm not an apostle because I succeeded my predecessor. This was important because the first pope of the Catholic church would be Peter. And Peter would pass on in succession his popehood, and the Catholic Church really believes, some of you have Catholic backgrounds, they believe that you're only empowered by succession. Here's the good news, you can have a crapped up generational bloodline, and you can still be anointed, you can still be appointed, and, but what Paul is trying to prove here is that no man made me apostle. I'm not an apostle because I went online, paid $60, and got some business cards. I'm an apostle because Jesus made me an apostle because I encountered Jesus because one of the reasons, uh, one of the things that had to be true in order for you to be an apostle was that you had to have seen Jesus after the resurrection. And Paul, on his road to Damascus, has an incredible encounter with Jesus, the resurrected Savior. And so he's telling the people, I'm not an apostle because man ordained me to be an apostle. The words that I'm about to speak to you, they come under the authority of Christ that he's given me. Why is it important that Paul takes some time to validate his own apostleship? 
It's because only apostles were given doctrine for the church. That was another thing that the apostles only could do. Now, we have people who have apostolic natures today, uh, but there are no capital A apostles today. Because the capital A apostles like uh, uh, James, like Paul, they not only were encouraging and building the church, but God was giving them divine revelation, which we call the scriptures, and though that was becoming Christian doctrine. So Paul has to validate his apostleship so that people understand he has an authority where he can give doctrine. Is this making sense so far? Okay, awesome. Let's look at verse 3. And all brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God and our Father, Lord Jesus Christ. I find this interesting because Paul isn't one to use words frivolously. Excuse me. Uh, If Paul uses a word, there's intentionality to it. So what do I want to point out? I want to point out two words here, grace and peace. The reason why Paul says grace to them is because they had fallen far away from the, the doctrine of grace. So Paul's starting off this letter saying, let grace be on you. And then he says, and let peace be with you. But I need you to understand something. You will not have peace until you have a revelation of grace. No grace, no peace. But if you will come to no grace, you will come to no peace. Why? See, here's the problem with us as quote-unquote mature believers. We become professional Christians, and we think that the gospel doesn't mean anything to us anymore. That the gospel is for those who are elementary. But the gospel doesn't stop when you give your heart to Jesus. The gospel interacts with you when you need to be empowered to live a Christian life. It's called grace. And some of you are in a season, more than ever, where you need the grace of God. And you can tell that you don't have the grace because you don't have the peace. People who have grace have empty bank accounts, but they have peace. They have broken relationship situations, but they have peace. Business is going under, but they have peace. But you have to receive grace in order to have that peace. Outside of Jesus, there is no true peace. Are you with me? What is grace? Write this down. Grace is unmerited favor. Somebody give me a, uh, Alicia, can you give me that bottle of water right there? Grace is unmerited favor. Thank you. It's receiving what I do not deserve. I need at least three sinners to say amen right there. Um, (laughs) It's receiving what I don't deserve. Now, this can be confusing for some of you who are a little bit newer to the scriptures because you're trying to figure out what's the difference between grace and mercy. Here's the difference between grace and mercy. Grace gives you what you don't deserve. Mercy refrains from you what you do deserve. When uh, I went into the refrigerator and ate the cake that my grandmother told me not to eat, and then she didn't beat my behind, that was called mercy. All my black and Latino people, come on, talk to me. Mercy, right? But, you know, when my grandmother knew that I was struggling financially and I, I got a little behind on my bills, she wrote me a check for $500 to make up some of the difference in my bills. That check was called grace. She gave me something that I didn't earn, that I didn't deserve, but out of the willingness of our heart. Are you seeing the difference between mercy and grace? And here's what David said, and this is just free. He said, I've got two stalkers. One is grace. One is mercy, and they're following me all the days of my life. What's, what's trailing behind me, Connie? Stuff I don't deserve? <laughs> 
What's trailing behind me? Mercy? See, some of you have not experienced the real grace of God, which is why you always look at your past in disdain. I've got, I, I feel like saying what Paul said, I am a greater sinner than all of y'all. Anything you've done, I've done with several people times 10. But when I look at my history, I don't see my sin the way other folks see my sin. What I see is God should have killed me and he didn't. <laughs> I should have had an STD, but I don't. Oh, see, y'all got too saved. You forgot your testimony. You knew you used to wake up and you throw up and how many folks you woke up and didn't even know their name and, and God kept you. And, and you had the audacity to be in ministry while also living in sin. You know the grace and mercy of God. Somebody say yes. yes. But what Paul is focusing on in the book of Galatians is really the grace of God. Let's look at verse four and five. Grace to you from Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom the be glory forever and ever, amen. Can I ask you a question? Do you consider this age evil? I'm concerned about this generation because we are losing a biblical worldview and we began to think that this world is actually righteous that people are actually good, um, and, and we begin to live our own laws. But I need to inform you in case you don't know, the age that we're living in is evil. Yes, it is. Killing millions of babies a year in the womb is evil. But when you don't have a biblical worldview, you will not see the world and its sin is evil. I'm, I'm gonna talk strong today and I ain't scared of none of y'all. Because we as a generation need to get back to surrendering our will and picking up the will and theology of God. I, I'm, hear me out. Hear me as your pastor. I'm not trying to pick a fight. I really don't want you to leave the church. But one of the things I need you to understand, we are going to stand against the evil of this hour. We're not going to be sensitive, or excuse me, we're not going to be passive around it because there is a war going on. There's a war going on for souls. There's a war going on for nations. And until we see the world as evil, we will never see the world needing grace. Paul calls this age evil, and they don't even have technology yet. Isaiah chapter 5 or excuse me, Isaiah chapter, yeah, Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20 through 21 from the ESV version. Because I know you didn't like what I just said, but I'm going to tell you what God said. He said, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Who put darkness for light and light for dark. I know we don't get these kind of scriptures. Who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And watch verse 21. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Do you know how many Christians I talk to who say, I don't care what the Bible says, this is what I believe. And the Bible says, woe to you. I don't care what the Bible says, this is how I feel about it. Woe to you. I don't care, look at me, I really don't care what you think or feel about abortion. I wanna know what the word says about abortion. Woe to you who live by your own opinions. I don't care what you feel about homosexuality. It got real quiet in here. 
but this is the only gospel I have to preach. I don't care what you think or feel about homosexuality. Woe to you who come up with your own doctrine. Woe to you who think that you're wise in your own eyes. And you know why you're like that? Because you're a humanist. And humanism is nothing more than trying to make ourselves God. So let's play by our rules, what we feel, what we believe. And I want to tell you, it's going to get harder to have a biblical worldview because the world is going to continue to get darker. The world is going to continue to get more creative with sin. The world is going to continue to get evil. And we have to have a right perspective on this world or else we'll join them. I love everybody. I got friends who ain't going to heaven unless there's a miracle. I'm going to love them straight to hell. But I'm going to stand for truth. And standing for truth doesn't mean that you don't stand in love. And we have to be careful because this generation thinks if you don't agree with me, you don't love me. Grow up. We can disagree and still love each other. But I, I, I want to I drive this point home because it is scary to me. How so many Christians want a prophecy, but not theology. They want an encounter and a shondo and a, a quick fix. I'm, can I give you a secret? The word will sustain you. When, when the prophets are dry and there's no word in the land, the word of the Lord will still stand. But maybe, maybe your opinions are so strong because they have not died to the opinions of God. Let me try the next verse. It might go better. All right. Verse six. Here's what Paul says. I marvel at the fact that you are turning away so soon from him, God, who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. So there was the church in Jerusalem and there was the church in Galatia. The church in Jerusalem was, was led by a man named James. You remember James because he was the half-brother of Jesus, which I think, man, that sucks. <laughs> Could you just imagine being the brother of Jesus? Like, you mess up one time. Why can't you be like Jesus? <laughs> I heard somebody tell me the other day, I bet James drowned one time. I was like, why you say that? Because he saw Jesus walking on water and thought he could do it. <laughs> it's like, that's got to suck to be the brother of James or be the brother of Jesus. But James is leading the church in Jerusalem. And an interesting fact, James would become the first apostle who would actually die for his faith. So all you who want great callings and you think it's going to lead you to five-star hotels, all, all of you who, who want to make a, a, a great effect for your generation as long as it's easy, James starts the church in one of the main cities there in Jerusalem, and he's killed for it. Would you do what God told you to do if it meant your life? Because we're going to see over in chapter 2 that God doesn't require your tithe. He doesn't require your attendance. He doesn't require your money. Here's what he requires, your whole life, the whole thing. The reason why some of y'all struggle giving away money is because he doesn't have your whole life. If he had your whole life, he would have your money. So there's the church in Jerusalem, and I talked to you earlier about the Judaizers. You remember the Judaizers? These were the factions of the Jewish community that had supposedly put their faith in Jesus, but they were teaching that you had to have works on top of the finished work of Christ. What begins to happen is that folks from Jerusalem, these Judaizers, they start following Paul around everywhere he goes. And this was kind of like 
a thing that happened with Paul. Sometimes people would follow Paul and try to preach after him only to make money. Sound familiar? And here's what Paul said. He said, don't get mad. At least the gospel is being preached. But one of the groups that would follow Paul around and create trouble were the Judaizers because everywhere that Paul would preach grace, they would say, no, no, it's not just grace. It's grace and circumcision. It's grace and keep the Sabbath. It's grace and keep the law. So Paul says here in verse 6, I love the phraseology of it. He says, I marvel at the fact it's only been a couple of years since we've started the church and you've already turned away from the message of grace that I gave you. And can I ask you a question before we beat up on Galatia? Have you turned away from the message of grace because of your troubles? Have you turned away from the grace of God because of what you're going through or because of what people have said? Or are you still allowing the grace of God to make an effect on your life? Here's how you can tell if the grace of God is really in effect in your life. When you start going through, do you run to a person or to the one? Because for those of us who have walked with God long enough, there are some things our spouse can't do. There are some things that our therapist can't break up and the souls are the foundations of our heart. There are some things that only God can do. But woe to you. He says, I marvel. I marvel at the fact that you've turned so quickly from this gospel of grace that I gave you. Look at verse 8 and verse 9. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, look at this language. He says, let him be accursed. He said that with his chest. Let him be accursed. Verse 9. As we have said before, so now I say again, anyone who preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received let him be a curse. We may not take God's word seriously, but he does. This is how serious God takes his word. Paul does not soften the words here. He uses a very specific word. He uses the word accursed. When you look up the original language, it really means like there's a curse that's imminent on you that's going to end up in death. For those of you, this is what Paul's saying who are preaching any other gospel besides the gospel that was left for us by Christ, you are, you are cursed. Okay, you need Bible. I got you. Revelation chapter 22, verses 18 through 19. I told you we were going to go through a lot of word today. Here's what the word says. For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. God takes his word seriously. Why don't we? Why are, and, and I want to encourage the preachers here, why are we so flippant with the word? We don't spend time studying it. We just want enough word so that we can make people happy, make them shout and dance a little bit while people are dying and, and, and dying in trespasses. And we're preaching to people that God wants to bless you with a new house and a new car. And we're preaching all these things that are not central to the gospel. And Paul says, cursed are those who preach any other gospel besides the gospel of Christ, Christ, grace. This is important because some of you might know that the Mormons, uh, and we have some polys in our church, uh, and I know you have family members that are, are Mormon, but the Mormons, they have the Book of Mormon, they actually call it another gospel. That's scary. Because the scripture says you're cursed. 
In another portion of scripture, I can't remember where it is, God actually says, I will take the prophecies from your false prophecies and shove them down your throat. God's very serious about his word, why aren't we? This book is life, friends. And we have got to spend more than a psalm a day to keep the devil away. We've got to start studying this word so that we're not easily swayed by false teachers. You do know that false teachers still exist. They have TV ministries. They have lots of followers on IG. They're still a curse. Sometimes deception here will come in a form of an angel, which is why you and I have to be diligent about being in the word. I, I see this happen in the body of Christ where many of us have the theology of our pastor. We don't know what we believe. We know what our church believes. We know what our pastor believes. But what do we believe? And can we prove what we believe? I'm trying to get us not to be lazy Christians, to really dive into the word. Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. 15. Timothy is a young pastor in the church of Ephesus, and Paul is his spiritual father, and he gives him an encouragement, and most, a lot of Timothy is just Paul encouraging him, hey, no matter what happens, just preach the word. No matter what they say, just preach the word. No matter how young you are, just preach the word. But here in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, Paul tells him, be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not have, need to be ashamed, watch this, rightly dividing the word of truth. Some of you might have seen it on our family Slack, but Matt is starting up a Bible study with Pastor Andrew. And it's not just a regular Bible study where you're going to have a bunch of stuff taught to you, but we're going to actually teach you how to dive into the Word, how to go home, study it on your own, and really learn how to get into a real Bible study. And here's the scary part. Some of y'all ain't even interested. And you think, I, I need you to hear this. And I'm saying this because I have personal experience. The thing that has sustained me when emotions can't, when the spirit is not moving, because there are moments, the thing that has sustained me is my foundation in the word. I know who he is. I, I know, and, and what vocabulary do you have if you don't have the word? How do you know what to pray if you don't know the promises of God? How do you know where victory lies if you don't see the hidden treasures between the scriptures? And, and we gotta stop making excuses. Well, I just, you know, I'm not, I don't have, and Google. Come on, somebody say Google. In Jesus' name, Google went to the seminary that you didn't and learn how to start studying the word. Somebody say yes. yes. Paul's encouragement to Timothy is to be diligent to stay in the word. Second Timothy chapter four, Verses three and four. I like this scripture because I think this sums up why a lot of us don't like my kind of preaching. You know, I have folks who come, ever since I was a youth pastor, uh, folks would come and say, oh man, your, your messages are too hardcore. I'd be like, have you read any of the red letters? I'm just asking you to pray a little bit more, read your Bible, maybe tell somebody about Jesus. He asked you to die. Let me tell you why we, we, most of our churches in America pattern itself after a nice little 20 minute Christian, Christian karaoke set where we sing two fast songs, one medium tempo and maybe a slow math city song. 
We finish it with some three-point inspirational talk and try to get you out of there in 45 minutes so that you can beat the Baptist to the buffet and you are spiritually weak, you are spiritually anemic, you have no word in you, you cannot sustain beyond your emotions. And let me tell you what 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 34 says. It says, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they, I feel something in here, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to stories and fables. When's the last time you sat through an hour doctrinal sermon and didn't complain? You just learn. You don't have an ear for it. You just want the stuff that tickles your ear. Just give me a, a quick little, you know, little reel on Instagram and ooh, I'm I can make it another two hours. Oh, retie my bow tie. I got this. Ugh, glory. And you still fall short because you have no word in you. And you, to make it worse, you can't endure word because you so desire somebody. Just tell me what I want to hear. Look at what Paul says. He says, they will turn their ears away from truth and be a turned aside to just wanting to hear stories. Just tell me a good story. You notice that pastors, including myself, when we preach, we always start off with a cute little story, then we end it with a little cute little story, make you feel good. I, I just got to warn you, during this book of Galatians, we're probably not going to have too many altar calls unless the Lord leads that way. This is a season for you to get to learn the word of God in a more doctrinal way. Somebody say yes. yes. It's important because that's what sustains you. Here's what I believe. I believe that saying in the word will help us to stay in grace. Staying in the word will help us to stay in grace. Let's look at verse 10. For do I now persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? For if I still please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Let me stop here for a second, because I just beat you up. Let me beat up pastors and leaders for a second. The reason why the body of Christ cannot endure sound doctrine is because we won't preach it. We are afraid of preaching it because we're afraid of people leaving the church. Nobody wants that heavy stuff on Sunday. Let's just preach a nice evangelistic sermon every Sunday, though the majority of the people in our church are not unsaved, they're saved, but we're gonna keep preaching salvation messages every Sunday. Nobody goes deeper, they just show up once a week and that's it, and here's why. Because pastors are more, have more fear of the board than they have of the Lord. We're afraid if we go too deep into this thing and we start teaching right doctrine, you might take your happy little tie and get your little happy hips and go down to the church down the street. We're afraid to tell you what the Bible says about sexuality, about morality, about doctrinal truth. We're afraid and we, we need a backbone again. See, all of us are under fear. It's either the fear of man or the fear of the Lord. Here's the revelation about the fear of the Lord, and please hear this because we are losing the fear of the Lord. The greater your fear in the Lord is, the less your fear of anything else is. Yeah. Why? Some of you have heard this story, but I, um, I picked on the wrong person one day in elementary school. They had big brother. Big brother came, said, after school, I'm going to get you. Now, some of y'all don't understand this because bullying for you is online. We used to have real bullying back in the day uh, where you like, couldn't say stuff and then get away with it. <laughs> 
That's like one of the things I hate about the internet. The internet is giving me permission to like say stupid stuff to me and I don't get to slap you in your face. Uh, grace, grace, Lord. But one day I'm picking on this person and they're like, I'm gonna tell my brother, I don't care about your brother. They tell a brother and the brother comes and twice my size, I started caring about the brother. <laughs> Says, I'm gonna get you. Followed me, got on my, my bus, got off at my stop. Now my house was about three houses up from the end of the block, Kareem. And I, I made a plan. I was like, I'm gonna zip it. I didn't have a key to the door. It's like, I'm gonna pound on the door so my grandmother knows it's an emergency. I run, I run, I get up to the top of the stairs. Believe it, I used to run, there was a day. I said, I'll let that one go because he's a good tither. Um, <laughs> I run up to the top of the stairs and I'm scared because this dude, I don't know how to fight. You know, I may look like Tarzan, but I fight like Jane, right? I'm knocking on the door and nobody's opening up and I'm freaking out. I turn around and the bully, my back is to my door. The bully is looking at me and he's like, yeah, what's up? I was like, oh, shoot. And all of a sudden, his face changes and there's this fright on his face. And I see behind me my grandmother and she goes, is there a problem? And I was like, yeah, is there a problem? <laughs> why did I tell that story? <laughs> oh, I know why I told that story. <laughs> I was no longer afraid of the bully because I was more afraid because I knew what my grandmother could do. You missed it. Okay, let me try this side. The revelation is, the reason I'm not afraid of the devil, the reason I'm not afraid of you, the reason you don't scare me, is because I've seen what God does to my enemies. I, I, I've seen the power of God. Now, we don't talk like this anymore, but I still believe that at the name of Jesus, melt, mountains begin to melt, demons begin to shake, cancer shrivels up and dies. There is power in the name of Jesus, and we need the fear of the Lord. Are you scared of God? And don't let them lie to you and tell you it's just a respect thing. No, the angels aren't just respecting God. They're scared of him because he's great. He's awesome. A lot of us are confused by that because how can we be afraid of a God who loves us? How can we fear a God who loves us? See, the thing is we're on his side. <laughs> Our fear is different than if we were an enemy. If we're an enemy of God, we're afraid he's going to take us out. My fear now knows what he can do and it keeps me and it refrains me from living in sin because of the fear of the Lord. But when you have more fear of man, you will let go of what you know to be true of God and give it. And this is important because a lot of people are deconstructing their faith right now, which is why I'm calling it this message, deconstructing their faith. But I am concerned that many of us are not deconstructing, we're destroying. Deconstructing means we take it apart and build it back together right. Destroying means we just pick it apart and it's done. See, if your deconstructing doesn't lead to rebuilding of your faith, you've not deconstructed it, you've destroyed it. <coughs> and part of the reason why so many people are getting lost in this season around this thing of deconstructing their faith and they're, they're walking away from the church, walking away from the body of Christ, is because they don't have a revelation of the fear of the Lord. Because if you had a revelation of the fear of the Lord, you would stand in truth no matter what people said. You would stand for righteousness no matter what people believed. Oh, man. The world, the world hates this gospel. This, this is not a gospel that the world loves. It is good news. 
to those who can hear it, which is why the scripture says, let those who have an ear hear what the spirit is saying. Not everybody has an ear to hear what God is saying. Though the gospel is good news to the unbeliever, this world hates the gospel, but this gospel still must be preached in season, out of season. The gospel must be preached. Do you stay away from the fear of the Lord because of the fear of man? Do you stay away from standing in truth when you know what the truth is because you're afraid of what people might think of you? I've had people leave our church because their friends gave them a hard time about our stands on LGBTQ, that we absolutely love everybody, but we do believe in a specific truth that the scriptures, and here's the deal, we don't get to make the rules, we only get to follow them. I know this is hard teaching, and I don't say this with a lack of sensitivity, because we, the, and, and the problem is the church has gotten so muddled in the world that we don't even rightly believe anymore. So now when I teach stuff like this, it's so offensive to the heart, because you've never heard that there's only one way. You've never heard that there are boundaries before. You've just heard about your purpose, your life, your next relationship, just you, 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 you. And if it's not about you, you don't want to hear it? Okay, let me keep going. Verse 11 and 12. Are you getting anything tonight? I hope y'all are getting something online. I've got 18 minutes to preach the rest of this. Verse 11 through 12. But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which, has preach, uh, which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ himself. Paul here is making a case that the message he's preaching has not been filtered through man or man's opinion, that this word that I preach is given to me directly by God. This is important because there are a lot of people in their attempts of trying to come up with new revelation and extra biblical revelation, they are filtering the word of God through their own opinions. And here's the scary thing about the word. You can make the word say just about anything you want it to say. Because the word is a reader of your heart. And so here in America, we had a generation of people who would use the scriptures to empower slavery. Though the scriptures do not empower slavery, but you can make it say that if that's what you want it to say. Paul here is saying, I've not filtered the message of Jesus Christ through my opinion or through any other man's opinion. When I got saved, I went, we're gonna see in just a moment, I went directly after Damascus, I went directly to Arabia after I got saved and I just hung out with Jesus and he taught me for three years and he gave me this direct revelation. This by no means goes through man's filter. This is directly from God. Haven't even talked to man yet. Look at verse 13 through 15 and we're getting ready to land this plane. For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my father. But verse 15, but when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace. Why is Paul saying all of this in 
verses 13 through 15. This is a lot that he's saying. Let me break this down for you. Paul is making a case for grace, but he's doing it by letting the church know who he used to be. Did you read here? Look back in verse, um, look back in verse 13. Let's start back from the top. For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism. What was his former conduct? Paul's former conduct was that he was so zealous for God and he thought that Jesus and his teachings were false that he started killing Christians because of his zealousness in Judaism. Not only that, let's look at verse 14. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my own contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of men. Here's what Paul is saying. I am a Pharisee amongst Pharisees. I was, I was the most religious. I was the most legalistic. I was the one trying to get at everyone. I went farther than even my fellow Pharisees, spiritual leaders of the day. I, I went farther than that. Why is Paul doing this? Because he wants you to know, I used to live in legalism. Now I live in grace. Yeah. I used to live in tradition. And I, I was zealous. You're not talking to somebody who hates tradition. He's like, I love legalism. It just does something for me. Yeah, that's the sensation that Paul has. Because he's trying to urge the church, I, this isn't me, y'all. What you're seeing, the gospel I'm preaching, this ain't me. If you hadn't met me just three years ago, I would have been killing you. But I heard the message in the gospel of grace. And it taught me this. Here's what the scripture says. It's the traditions of men that make the word of God of no effect. And Paul said that I realized that I was putting a heavy burden, not only on myself, but the people around me because I was preaching legalism and that you are only saved by your works, that God only loved you by your works. So Paul here is making a case for the grace of God in his own life. And, and here's just a little side note. Paul refuses to preach about grace without telling his own sinful past. When's the last time you shared your story? How's the world going to get saved if you don't open up your mouth and tell them what a wicked and evil and sinful person that you used to be before grace? See, the problem is our ego won't let us go there, will it? Our ego and our pride wants everybody to think that we've made it, that we've arrived, that I've, I came out of the womb speaking in tongues, sitting on the lap of Apostle Paul, speaking the first four books of the Bible. Like, no, just, we all know that we're all jacked up. Why don't we just put it on the table and be honest so that grace can have its way? Well, I, you know, I just don't think that I have to tell my story and you know, all that I've been through. People don't need to know all my business. Sit down. Grace means nothing if there is no need to apply it. One more time, grace means nothing if there is no need to apply. You know what movie, what kind of movie would suck? If they only showed you the ending. Let's just watch the last 15 minutes. We, what movie did we go see with uh, Tom? Yeah. What? Top Gun, right? Like, I wasn't ready to see Top Gun because I saw the old one and it was boring. I was like, I don't want to see this. But the boys went to hang out and so I'm always down to hang out. So I went there, right? Movie was bomb. Like, I don't even like action and all that stuff, but it was just a great movie, right? It wasn't a great movie. What was the, the actor's name? Tom Cruise. Okay. <laughs> he looked at me like, you don't know his name? No, I only know Jesus, Christ crucified. All right. <laughs> you know what made that a good movie? Not just showing up at the end and going, oh my gosh, he saved the day. 
That's not exciting. The only fact, the only reason why Tom Cruise is exciting and saving the day at the end is because we got to see the progress of how the day got messed up. You keep telling people and you're so corny with it. Oh, the grace of God. You just need, and you've never shared your story with them. You've got family members who don't know what you've been through. One of the beautiful things, I look at Caroline, who I told her, I was like, I'm glad you're back because I was about to call the police because um, <laughs> I ain't seen you in a minute. But Caroline was sharing part of her testimony. I want, she shared some of it here. But part of what Caroline shared with me one time and shared it in our congregation, she said, man, I would show up to parties and people would just be scared of me because of my demeanor and I drank and I did all that stuff. But then when I got saved, I, I would show up to parties and they'd be like, you're not drinking? You good? What's, you at peace? Start asking questions. What happened? And then all of a sudden, a, a door is open for the gospel. You're so afraid of people talking about you. And let me, let me confirm, they will talk about you. Because the church, <laughs> guess what? You and I are the church. We're going to talk because we're jacked up. This is not a perfect place. And if you are looking for the perfect place, tell me when you find it. This is a hospital with broken people who sometimes gossip, who sometimes lie, who sometimes hurt people. It's real quiet. Nonetheless, let the redeemed of the Lord say, not some, so. Why? Because your story opens up opportunities for people to know grace. And Paul is teaching on grace, but he's not leaving out his own testimony. He says, I'm an ex-con. I used to murder folks. But the grace of God found me. What would happen if in the next month you just began to pray, Lord, open up a door where I can share my story with somebody so that I can bless them with grace? See, many of us aren't thinking about that. We're so self-focused that we're not even thinking about the gospel for the nations and for the world. What would happen if uh, some of you parents, come here parents, y'all gonna be mad at me. Some of your kids would come to know saving faith in Christ if they came to know your testimony. Not the one you share at the women's Bible study. The real one. Yeah, the one you're nervous about right now. You're thinking right now. I'm not telling. Yeah, I see you. Your pastor's a prophet. I see you. What, what would happen if you just sat your kids down and said, you know, mama didn't always speak in tongues. Used to speak in some tongues that needed no interpretation. Used to cuss them out backwards, forwards, English, Spanish, and sometimes Greek. What if you start telling your kids, yeah, I know you're smoking weed and having sex. You ain't the first. I was having more sex than you. See, your kids have not seen the grace of God in your life, and you keep telling them about it, but they haven't seen the grace of God in your life because they haven't seen the detriment in your life. There is I talked about this, what, last week or the week before. There is power in your testimony. I'm not going to preach it again, but Lazarus got up after that fourth day, and when he sat in the corner, the Pharisees came in, and they said, we cannot kill Jesus because Lazarus is sitting there, not doing anything, not preaching, but the fact that he has gone through death and he was resurrected, all he has to do is stand there, let people see his testimony that I once was dead, now I'm alive, end of story. And that's what your story needs to begin to be professed as. That I once was dead in trespasses of sin. And I thought I, could, I thought I could save myself with more church attendance. With more worship leading. But grace and mercy came and did what works could not do. I need somebody to give God 10 seconds of praise for grace. Oh. Where would you be if not for grace? <laughs> Who would you be if not for grace? 
The old saint said, I used to be like a ship without a sail. Paul goes to the desert that's called Arabia. Now, Arabia used to have a different name. It used to be called Mount Sinai. But now in Arabia, Paul stays there for about three years, we believe, and he's just having tutoring sessions from Christ himself. And Christ has given him revelation about grace, giving him revelation about salvation. And he's been away for three years in Arabia. Did I tell you that it used to be called Mount Sinai? Did you forget that part? Here's why that's important. You remember Mount Sinai. That's where Moses went to meet with God. Remember what came back when he went to Mount Sinai? The law. The law came back in Mount Sinai. Now, Paul is back at Mount Sinai, not receiving a message on the law, but directly from Christ receiving a message of grace. Oh, are you Jesus is cool. This makes me happy, Nate, because it shows me that God's been working this grace thing out since the beginning of all time. This is why Jesus came, and many of you think that Jesus came to get rid of the law. That's not what he came to do. He came to fulfill it. What was missing from the law? Grace. So Moses receives the law at Mount Sinai. Paul comes and fulfills or finishes or adds to the law. Grace. And then the law is fulfilled at Mount Sinai. Are you seeing the correlation here? And, and notice that, that the scriptures tell us through Jesus that he didn't come to abolish the law. This is going to be interesting in just a moment. Are you guys still with me? Yes. Let me see where I want to, because I, I won't have time to preach all this. So let me see where I, I want to go. Hmm. Let's look at verse 16 and 17. To reveal his son to me, and this is what he's talking about, his time in Arabia. Uh, I, I went away for three years so that uh, the son was revealed to me that I might preach him, Jesus Christ, among the Gentiles. I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood. See that phrase coming up again, that thought coming up again, that this wasn't a consultation with man. This came directly from God. Verse 17, nor did I go up to Jerusalem where the Judaizers were to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Now remember, Damascus is the place where he encountered God. And this is important. And I'll just give you this as a prophetic tip. I'm supposed to be preaching exegetically but let me give you a prophetic moment. God will always send you back to where you came from for a different reason. For those of you who think that God is going to let you leave your family in the dust, you're wrong. You might need to separate from them for a season so that you can get healthy and whole and walk right with Christ. But just like Moses, God always sends the deliverer to deliver where he came from. So those of you who have been in an abusive relationship, guess what God is going to do? He's going to send some women in your life who have been in abusive relationships. And he's, there you go. For those of you men who were womanizers and, and, and abusers, guess what God's going to do? He's going to send you some little player who thinks he's all that in a bag of chips, doesn't know his chips are stale. And you're going to put him in his place and raise him up to be a man of God because God always takes Moses out of Egypt, sends him back to Egypt to get the rest of his people. Moses is simply a first fruits for the rest of, it's almost as a picture of Christ, that Christ is the first fruits and after him, he's the first of many. So Paul goes to Arabia, then he goes back to Damascus, 
And it seems as though Paul spent enough time in, in Arabia to receive this revelation of grace. Now turn to Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. I know some of you are saying, this is a lot of scripture. It's okay, you haven't read any all week. You're catching up. You all right back there, Tim? Good. Listen, this is good old Bible teaching. See, many of us, we know the gospel, but we don't really know the gospel. It's, it's sad that I, I've met 20-year-olds, people who have been raised in the church who have never heard a sermon, a message on the gospel, ever. We don't preach the gospel. Are you there in Matthew chapter 5? Are you there at Matthew chapter 5? Okay. Thought, Sam, I thought my church left me. thought it got raptured. All right. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. This is Jesus speaking. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle, that's an interesting word, will by no means pass by, uh, pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Stop for a moment. That's that scripture I was quoting a moment ago. Jesus is saying, hey, just because I'm preaching about grace, I don't want you to think that I came to do away with the law. I actually came to fulfill it with grace. Let's look at verse 19. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these uh, commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Watch this verse 20 because this is an important verse. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, I need you to get out of your American ears for a second and let me take you back to Israel. If you are a devout Jewish follower, you look up to the Pharisees. They are the epitome of righteousness. Uh, they are the standard for you. Are you with me? We look at the Pharisees differently because we, we know the end of the story. We know the Pharisees are kind of annoying and kind of bad guys, you know. But in this time, they didn't look at it. This would be like pastors or, or the leaders, and they were the keepers of the law. And Jesus says in verse 20 of Matthew chapter 5, Unless you are more righteous than these Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. If you're a Jewish person, you're listening to that going, I've got no chance. Because these Pharisees, and they didn't know that the Pharisees were fake. These Pharisees are perfect. They pray, they fast, they give tithe, they do all that stuff. And Jesus is telling me that the only way I can make it into heaven if I'm more righteous than them? What Jesus was doing was he was teasing their tongue to let them know that the righteousness that the Pharisees are walking in is a self-righteousness. It's not the righteousness of Christ. So if you're going to make it to heaven, it's not going to be based on your own merits. It's not going to be based on your own self-righteousness. It's going to have to be based on the righteousness of Christ Jesus. As I was reading that, I kind of asked myself a question, Alicia. I said, self, myself said, huh? I said, um, where did the Pharisees come from? I never, anybody ever think about that or like that's just came to me and I thought, where did the Pharisees come? And I started researching. Do you remember in Nehemiah's day, he was rebuilding the wall because the wall had been destroyed. In that time, there was a person raised up named Ezra. Ezra was a teacher of the law. Ezra was a teacher of the law and came to the revelation that the reason we were destroyed was because the children of Israel fell away from the law. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna raise up these guys called Pharisees and they're gonna be standard bearers. They're gonna be the keeper of the law, almost like the religious police. They're gonna make sure we stay in tune, we keep our stuff 
together, we get it right. Originally, the Pharisees were created in almost a pure and sincere way to keep the children of Israel on the right path. But there's a problem when you get church people a little bit of power. Because how did the Pharisees get from being right and helping to keep people in line with the law of God to now Jesus would even rebuke them? At one point, Jesus told the Pharisees, you go around the world making disciples and you make them twice as ready for hell as you are. That's your well-manicured, metrosexual, blonde hair, blue eyes, six-pack Jesus talking to the spiritual leaders of his day that you go around the world making disciples twice as ready for hell as you are. Why am I leaning in on this point? The reason why the message of grace received so much resistance in the New Testament was because the Pharisees were obsessed with the keeping of the law. Now, mind you, the law boils down to two things. This is what Jesus said. Write this down. He said the law boils down to two things. Love God, love people. When you read the Old Testament, when you look at the Ten Commandments and you see what Moses brought down, they can be boiled down to loving God and loving people. But the Pharisees started making it so much more because here's what we think, grace versus law. So we look at the Old Testament and we think law. We look at New Testament and we think grace. But I'm about to prove to you that grace has been all the way in the Old Testament and the law shows up in the New Testament because they're both God's idea and they're both supposed to work together. Is this making sense? Are you still with me? Let me break this down for you. Turn with me to Romans chapter four. So many of us believe wrongly that in the Old Testament, it was all about works, that they were justified by their works, and then in the New Testament, they became justified by faith. Works have never been able to justify us. Did you hear what I said? Even in the Old Testament, works were never able to justify us. Look at Romans chapter four. We're gonna read verses one through four. Because Paul here is again making a case for grace. He's saying, what then shall we say that Abraham our father has, excuse me, let me start over. I should have worn my contacts. What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh, or was found according to the flesh. Verse two, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Now watch verse three. For what does the scripture say about Abraham? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Verse four, now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. Here's what Paul is saying. If we were justified by our works, why does the scripture say that Abraham was made righteous simply because he believed? I want you to eliminate that false reasoning that looks at the Old Testament and says that they were justified by their works. They were not justified by their works. They thought they were justified by their works. According to Romans chapter four, and I encourage you this week, go down Romans chapter four because he gives other examples as well. That even in the Old Testament, they were never to be justified by their works. How do we get to where we are today? Here's where I land the plane. Perfect timing, L. And this is going to make sense as to why I call this message deconstructing faith. Because we are not the first generation to have to deconstruct our faith. And I just want to say deconstructing our faith is a good thing. As long as we land on Christ. 
The problem is I think we're getting muddled in uh, trying to deconstruct our faith slash we hate white people slash we hate evangelicals slash we hate Republicans or whatever the movement is. We just, we, we hate all of this or whatever. And, and that has nothing to do with God. You keep that out of the deconstructing of your faith. But I'm going to show you that if we will rightly deconstruct our faith, it will affect the evangelical church. It will affect white folks. Come on, Connie, talk to me. <laughs> I look. I just like to do that because she turns red. All right. <laughs> now, mind you, God had only given the people a very few amount of laws. The Pharisees, however, came up with over 600 laws. Isn't that like us? God's just like, love your neighbor, love me, and we start adding things on top of it. There were 365 negative commands, 248 positive laws, and by the time Christ came, it had produced a heartless, cold, and arrogant brand of righteousness. One more time, because I want you to catch it how I wrote it. Because the Pharisees were trying to get the people to be justified by works. But here's what that produced. By the time Christ came, the laws that the Pharisees had commanded us to live in had produced a heartless, cold, and arrogant brand of righteousness. I've identified 10 tragic flaws that the Pharisees created as a result of the law that they created. Number one, new laws continually needed to be invented for new situations. They did not believe that the laws of the Lord were enough, so they had to keep creating them. Number two, accountability to God is now replaced by accountability to man. Now, I believe in being accountable to man. I believe we ought to be accountable to a pastor. I'm accountable to a pastor. But my accountability to God is not replaced by accountability to man. But the way, if, if you're a person who believes that your, your works justify you, not only will you be self-righteous and arrogant, but it makes way for you to have to be accountable to a person in place of being accountable to God. Number three, it reduces a person's ability to personally discern. Because no longer do you know what you believe, you only know what your pastor believes. You only know what your pastor teaches, what your denomination teaches. Number four, it creates a judgmental spirit. Judgmental people are always workspace people. They, they get their merits from good behavior and they think everybody else should. All my Enneagram ones out there, okay. <laughs> number four, or excuse me, number five, the Pharisees confuse, this is a good one, please hear this. The Pharisees confuse personal preference with divine law. They confuse personal preference with divine law. I believe in biblical conviction. There are some things that the word says, biblical conviction. But you have to be careful not to add your cultural conviction to biblical conviction. Come on, talk to me. Yeah, black folks, God can move, even if there is no organ. White folks, God can move, even if there's no guitar and all there is is an organ. Don't, because I, I, I say that kind of as a miniature joke, because we have these cultural things that we prefer, and we just put God on it. God only moves in this. And, and this is what happens as a result of the pharisaical laws that your personal preference begins to overtake divine law. I'm almost done. Number six, it produces inconsistencies because you will never live up to the standard of the law. It created a false standard of righteousness 
Number eight, it became a burden to the Jews. Number nine, it was strictly external. It was not about the heart. The pharisaical laws were all about good behavior. And if you are preaching a gospel of good behavior, that is called moral theism. Christianity is about more than moral modification. It's about a heart transformation. God does not just want to stop your bad behavior. He wants to get to the root of the heart space. Play romantically for me so I can wrap this up. Imagine being Paul, a devout follower, a Pharisee of Pharisees, so zealous for Jehovah that when Jesus comes on the scene and starts preaching something he's never heard, he starts killing all of the followers. Not because he thinks anything besides he's zealous for Jehovah. I want you to imagine being a devout Jewish follower. That your whole life you've been taught to be justified, you had to do stuff. You had to keep the laws. You had to wash your hands here and, and not eat this and only eat this on this day and only have this on that day. And, and your whole life you've grown up in that. And all of a sudden, this strange ex-Pharisee comes and starts telling you it's actually not your works that justify you. It's the grace of God that justifies you. That would be hard to accept. Because my whole life I've, I've been justified by my works and you're now telling me that I'm not justified by my works, that I'm justified by his grace? So I'm not, I'm not mad at the church of Galatia, Alicia. It's because that's all they knew was works. But Paul comes and says, let me deconstruct this for you. Because originally there were only a few commandments that would keep our heart right with God and keep our heart right with people. But what has happened is over the centuries, over the generations, these Pharisees have built on top of the laws of God. And they've now made faith a burden. And so they're keeping attendance records of everybody who comes to the synagogue. They're watching to make sure you're not eating that pork. And faith no longer became a pleasantry, it became a burden. And I want you to understand something about God is that God's original intent for humanity was to live and walk with God, which is why Adam and Eve got to walk with God in the cool of the day. They messed it up and God said, I, man, I know the wages of sin are death. I'll kill this instead of you and I'll wrap you up in sacrifice, which is a prophetic picture of Christ to come because the Old Testament is always looking forward to Christ while we in the New Testament are always looking back to Christ and it's all coming to emerge with the God of grace. And so just like God did for Adam and Eve in the garden, he did for us 2,000 years ago, where you and I, because according to scriptures in Romans, our sin deserved death. But God loved us so much and wanted to be with us so much that instead of killing an animal, he said, I'm going to kill the spotless lamb, my son. And I'll wrap you in him like I did Adam in Genesis. And so now when I see you, I no longer see Ernie. I see my son, <laughs> what do I have to do to get that kind of attention from God? 
I'll do it. How much money do you want? How much? No, 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 no friend, no friend. It's actually just a gift you don't deserve. I know. Which is why I'm asking, how do I earn it? You cannot earn this kind of grace. This is a grace you don't know nothing about. You've lived your whole life doing your faith and works, trying to justify, trying to stay away from www.shouldn'tbehere.com. And if I can just make it one week without looking at pornography, I'll be saved. I'll experience. No, 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 friend. If you'll experience the grace of God, then porn will slowly fade away. Because you'll read. Some of you think that folks are getting saved because the world is not fun? Get up. We used to have testimony service and there's an old lady, she used to get up every service and Sunday night at 6 p.m. she'd tell the same story. We could say it verbatim with her. And I remember one time I just got frustrated with her service and I know this is hard to believe but I, I had a problem with my mouth as a teenager and, and um, she got up one time and um, she said, I lived a miserable life of sin and I yelled, you must have did it wrong. Yeah, that's kind of how the church sounded too. Then folks started laughing because they got what I was trying to say. I didn't leave the world in its sin because it wasn't fun. C come on, don't give me that religion. Don't look at me in that tone of voice. I didn't stop having sex because it wasn't fun. Didn't stop getting drunk because it wasn't fun. I was loving my, actually in the middle, I was in the middle of the height of my party life when God snatched me out. You know why I stopped having sex? Not because it wasn't fun, but because I found something 10,000 times more better. I found the lover of my soul. You, you know why I don't do drugs anymore? It's not because drugs weren't good to me. It's because I found a most high that I never have to come down from. You, you, you know why I don't, you know why I don't steal? Because I've, I've met the one who stole my heart. You, you, you know why I don't live in sin? It's not because it wasn't fun. And here's what Paul is saying. No matter where you've come from, it's not about your works. It's not about your church attendance. It's not about how many times you cussed or didn't cuss. It's have you opened up the hearts of your hand to simply say yes. See, in deconstructing in this generation, kind of what we're trying to do is we're trying to remove power from those who have had power. And, and I think it's a great movement as long as we keep it pure. Here's why the Pharisees didn't want to deconstruct their faith. Why they didn't want to get to the roots of it. Because if we deconstructed this faith, the Pharisees would no longer have power. They would no longer have authority. And it would be too great a change. Can I, can I let you know something? I promise you, I'm, I'm about to land this plane. This is my third close. I get one more, James, and then I'm done. The Pharisees didn't want to deconstruct their faith because in deconstructing their faith, they would realize that all of the 630 plus laws that they had instilled to make people think that they were justified by their works, that they would no longer have power. And can I tell you something? You and I, we're not really afraid of change. I know you think you're afraid of change. Girl, I can tell by how many hair colors you've had this year. You ain't afraid of change. Here's what we're afraid of really, Lisa. We're afraid of loss. If I told you tonight, I won that $1.2 billion, which I didn't. Jesus. Yeah, glory. I'm telling you, I spoke in tongues. I prayed. I fasted. I believe and trusted God. I got my favorite scripture numbers. Do it for me, God. 
I'm, phew, I ain't mad. You know how much I could do with $1.2 billion? We're taking over the world, right? But if I won the lotto and I told you I won, and tonight every person who happened to come to church tonight, you get a million dollars. Just Oprah you. You get a million. You get a million. You get a million. You, you see how excited? Wait, wait, wait. Wait, wait, wait. Wait, wait. You see how excited my chubby brother got? Let me tell you why he got excited. If I gave him a million dollars, that would bring incredible change. But you see, there was no anxiety because he didn't have to lose anything. But if you get saved and I tell you, okay, one of the things that God would love for you to do is to start tithing. Because that change means it's not being added to, something's being taken away. And the Pharisees were not willing to change their theology and their doctrine of works to the doctrines of grace, not because they were afraid of change, but because they were afraid of losing. They were afraid of losing power. And here's where I land the plane. Stand with me, please. I wonder how many of us, and I know you won't admit it, not in 2022, but I wonder how many of us have not received the gospel because like the Pharisees, we're afraid of what we're going to lose. See, the whole book of Galatians is all about salvation, justification by grace and faith. It's all about, it's all about salvation. But here's the good news of the gospel, friend. Salvation, watch this, is completely free, but it will cost you everything. The New Testament says that the kingdom is like a pearl of great price found in a field and the man sells everything that he has just so that he can have that one pearl. And here's what the scripture is telling us. How much are you willing to give up so that you can have this great, undeserved, unmerited, eternal salvation? See, you're not afraid to give your heart to the Lord. You're afraid to stop. You have to stop drinking because that's what you've been told your whole life. You got to stop smoking weed because that's what you've been told your whole life. And I think you ought to stop smoking weed. But I don't want you to focus on that part because the good news of the gospel, Alicia, is that God is not only good at catching fish, he's real good at cleaning them. All he asks for you is just receive. He says, I'll, I'll do the rest. No, 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 don't worry, don't worry. Just sit in the back seat. Jesus, take the will, and I'll just drive you like the uh, everlasting Uber I am straight into eternity. And as long as you just sit behind me, let me steer you. Let me tell you what job to have. Let me tell you who to marry. Let me tell you where to go. As long as you just follow me. I know it's going to seem like I'm bossing you around and mastering you around, but I just need you to understand my ways are higher than yours. My thoughts are higher than yours. And you're just thinking about here, and I'm trying to drive you here. So will you just surrender? Surrender to what? To grace. 